The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. Now, we've been considering together on the last Sunday mornings this great phenomenon that has been seen in the Christian church from time to time throughout the centuries and to which we give the name of revival or a spiritual awakening or a visitation of the Spirit of God. We've uh, looked at it uh, as we see it uh, described in the Scriptures. We've looked at its character in general. We've looked at its object and its purpose. And we have seen clearly that this is a great and a striking phenomenon which uh, is designed to revive the church and secondarily to call the attention of the world that is outside that men and women may be led and brought to salvation. It is a kind of sign that God gives in this way in order to confirm his work in the church and establish his people and build them up and encourage them and at the same time, as I say, it overflows in mighty blessing to those who are without. Now then, having described it in that way and having seen its leading features and characteristics and especially having considered last Sunday morning, what is its object and its purpose? It seems to me that the next logical step is this, is to ask this question. What effect, then, does it have, and especially upon those who are without? It is meant to let all the nations of the world know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty as we saw it there in the book of Joshua. But the question arises at once. Does it have that effect? Are all convinced by it? And it is in order that we may consider that question, I call your attention to this famous and well-known section in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Here an answer is given to that question, which is of very great value to us and should be of urgent concern to all who are looking for and longing for revival. Here, at any rate, is a possible reaction. And we find it not only here, but elsewhere in the Bible, and as you read the history of the church and of revivals throughout the centuries, you find that this kind of thing is constantly repeated. Here is one effect, at any rate. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? What is this? You remember the, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples and others with them there in the upper room, upon the 120. And as the result of this mighty outpouring of the Spirit that came upon them, they began to speak in other tongues, and undoubtedly there were many other similar phenomena as well. And this was noised abroad, and the people gathered together from everywhere, and observing and hearing this, they said, What meaneth this? What is this? They were amazed, some doubted, and these said, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine, they're drunk. Now there, you see, is a reaction on the part of certain people to this mighty phenomenon which takes place when God pours forth his Spirit. Now, this, I say, is a reaction which is due, as we are told here so plainly in the context, to certain phenomena that may sometimes accompany revivals. It is no, there is no doubt at all, but that it was the phenomena that accompanied the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost that led to this reaction. It was this speaking in tongues and other phenomena, I say. That was the thing that attracted 
and caused people to doubt and to be amazed and some to mock and to say that this was just due to the fact that these men were full of new wine. Well, now, in the history of revivals, you will find the same sort of reaction, practically without any exception at all. There are people who disapprove of the whole notion of revival. There are people like that in the Christian church, as well as people who are outside the Christian church. So it seems to me that it is very important that we should deal with this question of the phenomena. Now, they can be subdivided into various groups. First, there are uh, the tendencies, undoubtedly, in most revivals, to an emotional element. I don't think there's ever been a revival, but that that has been present. Some people have been moved very deeply and profoundly, and sometimes others in a very excitable manner during a period of revival. That is just a sheer fact which I am putting before you. I'm going to deal with possible explanations in a moment, but I'm simply collecting the facts at the moment. But there are other phenomena also. And it is these others that generally have been the subject of most criticisms. When I say phenomena, I mean that things happen over and above the fact that large numbers of people are awakened and large numbers of members of the church are roused and are quickened. Uh, I mean over and above the fact that thousands of people are converted, as I have been indicating to you. Now, the phenomena I'm talking about are in addition to all that. And this question of the additional phenomena is a very important and indeed a very fascinating one. Now, let me make this clear. These phenomena do not always manifest themselves in a revival. You can have a revival without the phenomena at all. But it is generally speaking true to say that in most revivals, these phenomena do come into the picture. Now, take for instance a very interesting fact like this. Take a hundred years ago. I have reminded you repeatedly that this revival was experienced in the United States of America, in Northern Ireland, in Wales, in Scotland, and in partially in other countries. Now, this is an interesting fact. These additional phenomena that we're going to consider were very little in evidence in the United States. They were very little in evidence in Wales. They were almost non-existent in Scotland, but they were very marked and very striking in Northern Ireland. Now, there is a, an interesting fact before we go any further. Establishing the point I've just been making, that these phenomena are not essential to revival. They are not invariably present. They may be, they may not be. So we've got to keep that in our mind. You can have a revival without these phenomena at all. And yet it is true to say, on the whole, that they tend to be present when there is a revival. Though the extent and so on varies tremendously from district to district and from country to country. Well now then, what are these phenomena to which I am referring? It seems to me that the best way to classify them is to put them under two headings. First of all, certain physical phenomena. And the physical phenomena are these. Under the influence of this mighty power, people may literally fall to the ground under conviction of sin. Literally fall to the ground and or faint and remain perhaps for a considerable time in a state of unconsciousness. Now, in the, the revival in 1859 in Northern Ireland, they referred to this as being struck, because it was exactly as if a person had been literally struck or hit upon the head, and they fell to the ground in a state of complete unconsciousness. This has frequently happened in revivals in other places and in different centuries. Then there are people who seem to go into trances, 
They're obviously in a state of trance. They may be seated or they may be standing, and they're looking into the distance, obviously seeing something, and yet they're completely unconscious. They're not aware of their surroundings. They don't seem to be able to see anything, nor to hear anything that's round and about them. They're, they're evidently seeing something with a, a spiritual eye, which is not visible to others, in a state of trance. It's the only word which we can employ with respect to it. Well, now, there are some of the physical phenomena. There are others. But it's, there is no purpose in my giving you a full or a detailed list. There are a whole group of phenomena which belong thus to the realm of the physical and which have often been regarded as purely physical and have even been treated medically as purely physical phenomena. Now, you'll never read the story of a revival without coming across that. And those of you who have been reading, and I trust you all have, the books on the revival in Northern Ireland a century ago, will have come across this because, as I say, it was a very, very prominent feature in that revival. But then, in addition to these physical phenomena, there are also certain mental phenomena. What do I mean by mental phenomena? Well, I mean things now which do not so much affect the body as clearly affect the mind. I am referring to, for instance, things like this. A most extraordinary gift of speech is given to people during revivals. You hear of this kind of thing. People who, if, if they did ever take part in prayer at all in the church, were very halting and very hesitant. Suddenly, begin to pray with an amazing eloquence, with extraordinary language that they were never capable of before. There are many instances of this. I was talking to a man only about two or three weeks ago who well remembered the revival of 1904 and 5 in Wales, and he was telling me what happened to his own minister. They'd had this man as minister in their church for a number of years. He was an able man, always preached what they would call a good and a sound sermon, but was always halting and hesitant, coughed a lot. It was a poor speaker in every way, in every respect, I say apart from his matter. Well, this man attended a presbytery meeting one day. He'd been to the presbytery on similar occasions many, many times. He went to this particular presbytery, and in the presbytery, Reports were given by numbers of other ministers of the events which had been taking place in their churches during the revival. And this man listened. And he came back to his own church completely transformed as a preacher. He went into his pulpit the next Sunday, and they rarely could scarcely believe he was the same man. All the hesitation had gone. All the impediment had disappeared. He spoke with freedom with authority and with power, such as they'd never known from him before. Well, now that kind of thing, a gift of speech is given, in prayer, or in conversation, or in description. Not only that, there is very often a gift of prophecy given. I mean by that a literal ability to foretell the future. Now, we must face these things, because it does seem to me that we are in grave danger with all our learning and knowledge of quenching the spirit. I am putting facts before you. You will find this phenomenon of prophecy, this ability to foretell the future, frequently present. It takes many forms. I knew a man personally who had had their minister, who had had this gift again in 1904 and 5. It disappeared completely afterwards. But he was told beforehand of something that was going to happen in his church, not once, but morning by morning, awakened out of his sleep at half past two in the morning, and given direct and exact information of something that was going to happen during that day. And it did happen. There's another part of this mental phenomenon. And then you get knowledge given to people, which is quite inexplicable. There were cases in Northern Ireland, for instance, of people who couldn't read, who couldn't write, who'd never been able to read the Bible. But suddenly they were given an ability to find places in the Bible, though they still couldn't read, and to make known the contents. Well, I could keep you endlessly and for hours in giving further illustrations 
along this particular line. Abilities have been given. Gift of discrimination. Gift of understanding. Gift of planning. Here I say in this realm of the mental. Quite astonishing powers have certainly been given to people for a temporary period. Well now then, there are the main phenomena to which I'm directing your attention. The physical and the mental. These things occur, may occur, during a period of revival. And here is the question that confronts us. What is this? How do you explain it? Now that's why I'm putting it in the context of Acts 2. You see, this thing happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out and the results followed. And here are these people at Jerusalem gathering together and saying, What meaneth this? What is this? And some said, What are you asking your question for? The thing's perfectly obvious. These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. Obvious explanation. Ah, and people have continued to be like that throughout the centuries. There are various explanations that are put forward. They were put forward a hundred years ago, as they've always been put forward in every period of revival, and they are still being put forward today. And that is why I'm calling attention to all this. There are people, I say, who dismiss and denounce the whole notion of revival because of these phenomena, and therefore when they're exhorted to pray for revival, they say, most certainly not. We don't want that sort of thing. We are not interested in that type of experience. And thus, without realizing it, they're often conscious, they're often guilty of quenching the spirit. Now then, let us look at some of the explanations that are put forward, and especially today. And may I add this, that I am particularly concerned about this because, as you know, there is great interest in this matter at the present time. And I know of nothing that is such a complete answer to some of these modern psychologists who would explain conversion and everything else along their physical lines. There is nothing which is such a complete answer to them, particularly, as revivals. Now then, let me show you what I mean. There are some who would suggest that all this is just some form or kind of what is now called brainwashing. You know how they put it? They compare it with a technique that is being employed at the present time by the communists. They compare it with what was so obviously employed by a man like Hitler in pre-war Germany and even during the war in that country. What is this, they say? Well, they say this is quite obvious. What is happening here is this. That the minds of these people are being bombarded they're gradually being worn down. They're brought together in crowds or they're dealt with and kept in cells and they're given insufficient sleep and insufficient food. Everything is done to break down these people and their resistance. And you speak at them, you shout at them, you bombard their minds. And then when you've brought them to the point of collapse, you do it still more with a greater intensity of pressure and they do collapse. And then in the state of collapse, it's the simplest thing in the world to indoctrinate them. You can insinuate your own teaching into their minds and they will believe it and accept it. They'll become devotees of it and they will go out and they will try to convert others in turn. Well now, there is, is their explanation. Let's be clear about this. That kind of thing, of course, can be done and is being done. There is no question at all that that is precisely what Hitler did. There is no doubt at all that that is exactly what the communists are doing at the present time. By means of a given technique, they can thus break down the resistance of people's minds and insinuate their own doctrines into them. Well, now, here is the suggestion. The suggestion that is put forward is, you see, that what happens during these periods of revival is exactly the same thing. Well, now, then, how do we deal with this? Well, let me make this quite plain and clear. I am concerned only to deal with revival. I am not concerned to deal with evangelistic campaigns. It's very important we should draw that distinction. And for this reason, that in evangelistic campaigns, techniques are used and used deliberately, but not in revival. 
Now I do want to underline and emphasize that difference. I am concerned only about revival, where no techniques are used at all. My argument has reference to nothing but that. I'm not concerned at this moment, this morning, to deal with what happens in evangelistic campaigns. There is a clear distinction to be drawn. So I go on and put it like this. This uh, suggestion with regard to brainwashing, to give it its general term, completely fails in the matter of revival because it completely fails to explain the beginning of revival. Now take, for instance, what happened in Northern Ireland. There it happened in the case of one man to start with. It was exactly the same in the United States. It all started in just one man. There was no bombardment of the mind of this man, none at all. There was no technique employed. It was just one man who himself became convicted of sin and was converted and then began to feel an impulse that he should tell others about it. There were no large crowds. There were no special techniques employed, none whatsoever. That is the amazing thing about the story, that it was just one man and then two others joining him, and they prayed together for months, just the three of them in a prayer meeting. No bombardment of the mind at all. No, no particular technique brought to play with a desired result and effect in their mind's eye. Nothing at all. Just three men praying, and on and on it went for months, and slowly others began to come in. Now, this suggestion, this attempted explanation, fails completely to account for the beginning and the origin of a revival. Another thing it fails to explain is this, that it should happen in several countries at exactly the same time. That was not only true a hundred years ago, it was true two hundred years ago. When you had that great revival under Jonathan Edwards in the New England states, you had it in England, you had it in Wales, you had it in Scotland, and in other countries. It doesn't explain that at all. Why should all these things happen at the same time in different places where there was no contact and no knowledge whatsoever of what was happening? It leaves it without an explanation. And here's another argument. Many and many a time have men tried to produce a revival. In this way, they have read the accounts of revival. Ah, they say, now then, we see that this is how it happened, that one man began to pray and others joined him, or perhaps they began to pray right through a night, and then the revival broke out. Now they say, we must do this. So they've done the very things that had happened during a revival. They've repeated them down to the smallest detail. They may have read Finney's books on, book on revival, lectures on revival, and they've put into practice everything that Finney tells them to do. He says, if you do this, you'll get a revival. They've done it all, but there hasn't been a revival. They've done their utmost with all their techniques and methods, but there has been no revival. They may have had a number of individual conversions, but there has been no revival. Well, now then, this explanation, therefore, completely fails, you see, at that point also. And lastly, it fails altogether to explain these interesting and curious mental phenomena to which I've been directing your attention. It just doesn't begin to explain them at all. It does explain how you can indoctrinate a man. It does explain how you can bring a man to a decision. It does explain how you can influence the minds of men if you simply employ techniques. Ah, oh, yes, but we are concerned with these mental phenomena, these astounding prophecies, this amazing ability that is given, and these various other things. And this proffered explanation does not even begin to explain such phenomena which you get in connection with revivals. Well, there's one explanation, but come to a second. The second explanation that is commonly put forward is that this is nothing but a case of mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. Oh, they say what's happening here, of course, is that these people have just become hysterical. You know what it is for a person to be hysterical? Well, sometimes that becomes a sort of epidemic and large numbers of people become hysterical at the same time. What of this explanation? Well, first and foremost, I would say once more, 
that it completely fails to explain the origin and the beginning. There was no evidence of hysteria at all in that first man and the first group of men in Northern Ireland. None whatsoever. There were no phenomena at all there. Same in America. Same in Wales. Why should this suddenly begin? There's no explanation. Why should it spread? Again, there's no explanation. And may I put before you as a second answer to this charge a series of points that were put forward by a Dr. Carson who lived in Northern Ireland a hundred years ago who was obviously a very wise and careful and Christian physician who was in the midst of all these phenomena and who carefully collected them and analyzed them and brought his mind to bear upon them. Now he pointed out that there were five points which seemed to him to be more than adequate, and I entirely agree with him, to exclude this diagnosis of hysteria. And here they are. They're partly medical, but I think you should be interested in them. First, it is almost an invariable symptom of hysteria that people are conscious of a ball in the throat. They feel they're choking, that there's a lump there and they're going to choke. It's, it's, it's almost invariable in hysteria. There was no evidence of that at all in Northern Ireland a hundred years ago. Secondly, it is a characteristic of hysteria that people laugh and cry almost at the same time or change quickly from one to the other. Uncontrollable laughter than uncontrollable weeping. Sometimes they're almost mixed together or they may follow in quick succession. There was none of that at all in Dr. Carson's experience in the revival of a hundred years ago. Thirdly, in, his, in hysteria, you almost invariably have convulsive movements of the limbs, the extremities. Convulsive movements. He didn't see a single case of convulsive movements during the revival. Item number four, it's just a strict medical fact. Hysteria is almost entirely confined to the female sex. That's just a medical fact. All the medical authorities you may like to consult will agree with it. Hysteria is practically confined to women. Whereas, of course, in Northern Ireland and in other places where these phenomena appeared, they were found in, with equal frequency amongst men. And lastly, he makes this very good point that even in women, hysteria generally occurs in a certain type of woman whose health is weak and frail. Hysteria is practically confined to such women and is not true of all women. And once more, the answer is, you see, that in Northern Ireland it affected all kinds of women, men, youths, strong, sturdy people, all this, you see, these five points, it seems to me, of Dr. Carson are enough in and of themselves to exclude forever the notion of mass hysteria. But I would add this to it as a third point. The character of the men who have observed these phenomena would I, have I would have thought have been sufficient in and of itself to exclude this particular diagnosis. If ever there was a cool, rational, intellectual man it was the great Jonathan Edwards. He observed these phenomena 200 years ago and he believed that they were of God. Jonathan Edwards was not the type of man who was likely to be deluded by hysteria, the very exact opposite. The same is true of others like Archibald Alexander and others who have given their accounts of them. And the same was true of these men like Dr. Carson and others in 1859. Not only the people to whom the phenomena, in whom the phenomena happen, but the people who described them and have accounted for them is enough to put that out. And lastly, my fourth argument is this, the results that follow. Hysteria is utterly useless. It's enervating. There is something almost disgusting about it. It's a waste of energy. And it leads to no purposeful or beneficial result at all. It's something of which one should feel ashamed in every respect and in its results included. Whereas I've already reminded you of the amazing and astounding results that have invariably followed 
in the case of revival. Well, there is that second attempted explanation. Let me come to a third, the psychic explanation. Now, this to me is much more serious. That first one, it seems to me, has no case for it at all. It's the same with the hysteria. But the psychic explanation, I would regard as being much more serious. And yet your modern psychologists hardly ever mention it. It's interesting in and of itself how superficial is their attempted diagnosis. But the psychic is much more serious. What do you mean by psychic, says someone? Well, I mean things like telepathy. I mean strange phenomena which we don't understand but which we know to be true. Thought transference, mind transference. I'm thinking of things like mesmerism. I'm thinking of something like hypnotism. These are phenomena which we cannot dispute but which we find very difficult to explain. The ability of mind to influence mind. There are people who are born with a gift of being able to read other people's minds or men. For instance, like the late Professor Gilbert Murray, who was a typical intellectualist. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a typical humanist, classical humanist and intellectualist. Professor Gilbert Murray had the power to read other people's minds. He was often tested. He'd be in one room and the other people would be in another, and he could tell them what they were thinking. Now, have you ever read about this sort of thing, these extrasensory phenomena, as they're called? There are, there are, the, the experiment with time, a book by Dunn, and you're aware of these phenomena in the realm of the psychic, which cannot be explained. Well, now, there are some who would have said that this is entirely what happens at a time of revival. But here, my answers would be these. Why should this suddenly start in people who'd given no evidence of having these powers before? Why should it start suddenly? Why should it be so common? Why should it happen to masses of people at the same time? Why should it suddenly stop, as it always does in a revival? And again, we have this question of the spiritual results that invariably follow a period of revival. Let me hurry on. There is another explanation that's put forward. It's the fourth, and that is that all this is the work of the devil. That is what the Roman Catholics said about the revival in Northern Ireland a hundred years ago. That's what the Unitarians said. That is what many people in the church said who are virtually nothing but Unitarians also. And that is what so many people they say, this is all the work of the devil. But here there are insuperable difficulties to this theory, and here are some of them. Why should the devil suddenly start doing this kind of thing? What conceivable object can there be in his doing it? Here is the church in a period of dryness and of drought and of aridity. Why should the devil suddenly do this which calls attention to religion and to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or let me put that strongly. By putting it in a second form, the very results of revival, I would have thought, exclude completely the possibility of this being the action of the devil. Because the main result of revival, as I've kept on reminding you, is that thousands of people are converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and become true believers. The churches become too small and you have to build larger ones. Men and young men crowd and offer themselves to the ministry and the gospel spreads in a most astounding manner. Is the devil likely to do something that leads to that? But listen to our Lord's own answer to this particular charge in Luke 11, verses 15 to 18. Our Lord one afternoon cast out a dumb devil. It came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And that's the final answer. If this is the work of the devil, well then the devil is an unutterable fool. He's dividing his own kingdom. He's increasing the kingdom of God and of Christ. He's bringing people to salvation. He's working against himself. But the devil is not a fool. 
He has amazing wisdom and subtlety and ability. There is nothing which is so ridiculous as this suggestion that this is the work of the devil. And listen to John putting it in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. If you're in any doubt as to what spirit it is, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. A spirit that leads men and women to confess that Jesus is the Christ cannot be the spirit of the devil. It is the spirit of the living God. Very well then, there we have hurriedly glanced at these false explanations. What is the true explanation? It's all before us, isn't it? They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men be full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Then he brings out the negative. These are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. He deals first with the false explanations, and he ridicules them. He shows how utterly impossible they are. And then he proceeds to the true explanation, which is this. These are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is what? Well, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote the prophecy of Joel. Let me put it to you like this. What is the true explanation? The first thing we have to do is to remind you that even saintly ministers of God have disagreed amongst themselves about the explanation of these phenomena. The men in whose parish the revival began in Northern Ireland a hundred years ago, the Reverend J. H. Moore, he disliked the phenomena and he discouraged them, and there were practically none of them in that parish of Connor. But there were others who didn't take the same view. And there have always been differences of opinion. Jonathan Edwards defended them. He believed that in the main they were of the Spirit of God. There was a man called John Berridge who preached in East Anglia 200 years ago. He even encouraged them. He believed they were a remarkable sign of the Spirit of God. Wesley and Whitfield, on the other hand, were unhappy about them and uncertain about them. I say this that we may see that this isn't a simple matter and that it behoves us all to approach the matter with caution and above all with reverence and with godly fear lest we may make foolish statements which we will regret later and become guilty of quenching the spirit. How do we approach it? Well, let's approach it from the scripture. Has the scripture anything to tell us about this? Well, of course it has. What does it tell us? Well, go back to your Old Testament. And read there about the prophets. How did these men receive their messages and how did they deliver them? And the records tell us that they were in the spirit. Or a spirit came upon them. They were in a state of ecstasy. They were sometimes in a state of trance. They were in an exalted mood. Read the stories about King Saul, for instance. How the gift came upon them and the people said it became a common saying is Saul also amongst the prophets a spirit of prophecy it's perfectly clear there indeed there is another fact which is generally put in connection with this how sometimes uh, this spirit could be encouraged by the playing of music how have you accounted for the prophecies Peter tells us Prophecy is not of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Ghost. How did the prophecy come? How did this divine afflatus come to the men? Be careful, my friends, lest you dismiss the prophets and the whole phenomenon of prophecy as we have it in the Old Testament with your intellectualism. They were certainly laid hold of. They knew something about an ecstatic condition. But that's the Old Testament come to the New. Look what happened here. Look at what happened to these disciples themselves, these apostles and these other people. Something so extraordinary happened that to certain people standing around they appear to be drunk. 
They say, this is nothing but drunkenness. This is sheer madness. And often this charge of madness has been brought forward. The very phenomena which are recorded in the second chapter of Acts. And then take the apostle's explanation. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is what Joel said was going to happen. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. The spirit had been given before, but he had not been poured out like this before. And a man here and another man there, I will pour out. It will be something overwhelming. It will be en masse, as it were. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And it happened to the mill girls in Northern Ireland. Poor girls who had been brought up in poverty and penury, who were ignorant and who had practically no education, they suddenly began to prophesy. They displayed amazing knowledge and were able to speak in an unusual manner. Doesn't it rather look as if the prophet Joel had anticipated this? Had prophesied that it was going to happen? Young men, young women, visions, dreams, prophecies, old men dreaming dreams. That's, that's what's happening, said Peter. This is the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And the results are exactly as they were prophesied. But there are other facts. You will read in the 10th chapter of Acts, in verse 10, that Peter was upon a certain housetop and that he was in a trance. The apostle Peter, in a trance. And he had a vision the sheet sent down with the various beasts, you remember. You will read in Acts 16 about the Apostle Paul that he wanted to go and preach in Asia. The Spirit prohibited him. He then wanted to go to Bithynia. The Spirit wouldn't let him. And then he had a vision in the night. The man of Macedonia, the Apostle Paul, had a vision. You will read in Acts 22 that he says this, I was in a trance. Let's be careful, my dear friends, lest I say with our supposed scientific knowledge we be found to deny the Scripture. When the Spirit comes upon a man, he may be in a trance. And then you've got nothing to do but to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 and to see that there were all kinds of phenomena in the church of Corinth and the apostles to instruct them and guide them and restrain them and to say that everything must be done decently and in order. Now, there is the testimony of the Scripture. Very well, what is our attempt at an explanation? What is our conclusion? Let me put them in a series of propositions to you. Doesn't it seem clear and obvious that in this way God is calling attention to himself and his own work by unusual phenomena? There is nothing that attracts such attention as this kind of thing. And it is used of God in the extension of his kingdom to attract, to call the attention of people. I'm sure there is that element. But secondly, we must never forget that the Holy Spirit affects the whole person. Other influences do. Any powerful stimulus affects the whole person. Have you listened on your wireless to the broadcasts of football matches and so on, or have you been to such places? Haven't you seen people under the excitement shouting until they lose their voices? They stand out, stand up and wave their handkerchiefs. They hit people, they don't know what they're doing. Now, it's not regarded as strange nor unusual when it happens in a football match. But because it should happen in a revival, people say, oh, this is all psychological. Haven't you seen people weeping in theaters and in cinemas? Haven't you seen people going beside themselves under the influence of music? Of course. You see, man is body, soul, and spirit. And you can't divide these. And anything which comes powerfully to any part of men is liable to affect the other parts of men. We all know what it is for our bodies to affect our minds. If you're not feeling well, if you're bilious or if you're ill, your mind doesn't function so well. On the other hand, if something happens to your mind, it affects your body. If suddenly you're stimulated, your whole body seems fit and strong and powerful. 
You wouldn't have believed it at the beginning. Let's be very careful that we don't do violence to men's very nature and constitution. Man therefore reacts as a whole. And it is just folly to expect that he can react in the realm of the spiritual without anything at all happening to the rest of him, to the soul and to the body. And so we must expect this kind of thing in a period of revival. We must expect different persons to react in a different way. We've got a perfect proof of that, of course, in the scriptures themselves. The same Holy Spirit inspired Paul and Peter and John. And yet I could tell you every time, if you read out a few verses to me, I could tell you which of the three had written them. The same Holy Spirit inspired the three. Yes, but he, the message comes to us through the men that have been used, through their brains, through their temperament, through their mentality. That's not done away with. You can see the different style, the different representation. The same Spirit, but the manifestations differ. So it is in revival. And thus, you see, you would expect children in a time of revival to react more violently than adults. You would expect certain types of persons to react more violently than others because they're their type of person. And so it proves to be the case. All, therefore, that can be proved is this, that these phenomena are indicative of the fact that some very powerful stimulus is in operation. Something is happening which is so powerful that the very physical frame is involved. I go on to say that we must remember that the phenomena are not of importance in and of themselves. The phenomena, therefore, should not be sought, they should not be encouraged, they should not be boasted of. The phenomena, if I may use a modern term, are epiphenomena. Epiphenomena incidental, occasional concomitants and not a vital, essential part. And that is why the phenomena should tend to disappear as the revival goes on, and actually they have generally done that in practice. And I would not hesitate to add this, that sometimes there are phenomena in connection with revivals which seem to me to be due to nothing but to a sheer breakdown of the physical frame. You do get some people who become hysterical, actually hysterical in revival. There are people who manifest other psychic phenomena. There's no doubt about this, it seems to me. But I don't think there's any difficulty in explaining that. The body is weak. Some bodies are weaker than other bodies. And so when this mighty spiritual power comes, there are certain bodies that break down and they should be helped. They should be dealt with in a semi-medical manner. They should be prayed for. They should be pacified. And that is how these great leaders of revival have always dealt with them. But let us also remember this. Whenever the Spirit of God is working in mighty power, the devil always seeks his opportunity. If he can discredit it, he will. And he has always tried to do so. He's tried to bring in his counterfeits. He's tried to drive people to excesses. And he's often succeeded with particular individuals. That is why, you see, you have so much in the Bible about testing the spirits and proving the spirits. We mustn't be misled. There are tests which are given, and it is our business always to imply them. So I would conclude by saying that the phenomena are not essential to revival, they are not vital to revival, they are not religious in and of themselves. I believe that in their origin they are essentially of the Spirit of God. But we must always allow for the fact that because of the very frailty of human nature and of our physical frame, you will always have the tendency to an admixture, partly along the physical, partly along the psychic, and partly as the result of the devil. But is there anything which is so foolish or ridiculous as to dismiss the whole because of the character of a very, very small proportion? If you begin to do that, you'll have to dismiss the whole of your New Testament. Because here we are told that the other forces are ever trying to come in and we must realize the true and understand it and withstand the other. The New Testament 
teaches us to expect this and to be on guard against the false and the spurious. Very well then, we end by saying this, these phenomena as the whole revival is as the Apostle Peter says, the result of an outpouring of the Spirit of God. We mustn't seek phenomena and strange experiences. What we must seek is the manifestation of God's glory and his power and his might. What we must seek is reviving. What we must seek is an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon us. And when that comes, it will be so amazing that strange and unusual things may happen. But we shall always know that it is God moving amongst us. And we shall be ready to identify the false, the spurious, that which indeed belongs even to the evil spirit, and restrain it. Anybody who tries to work up phenomena is a tool of the devil. He's putting himself into the position of the psychic and the psychological. No, no, we mustn't be concerned about these things. We must keep our eyes on the glory of God and the outpouring of the Spirit and leave it to God in his sovereign wisdom to decide whether to grant these occasional concomitants or not. There should be no difficulty about differentiating between the work of the Spirit and the work of fanatical men and the work of these unseen forces and powers and the work of the devil himself. Well, let us be careful lest we quench the Spirit and let us keep our eyes fixed upon the glory of God and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.